1: You can focus in. You can see where, you know, mistakes are made. You can see how people react, right? Um, What they do well, what they do poorly.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Connor Robison discussing the Battle of Green Springs. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, Publishers of the new book, Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island, by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Connor Robison. And he'll be discussing the Battle of Green Springs, uh, a little-studied underappreciated part of the 1781 Virginia campaign. We here at the Journal of the American Revolution offer a platform to a lot of different people. Uh, Historians, professional and amateur alike, museum specialists, and in the case of today with Connor, who's a first-time writer, a creative writer. Connor believes, as you'll hear him describe, that his charge is to bring a lot of these battles to life, especially ones that are not as... Uh, well, studied perhaps as others. Tonight's a perfect example of the kind of fertile ground available for study and research here at the Journal of the American Revolution. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Connor Robinson. Connor Robinson, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Connor, you're a first time guest. Tell us about your background.
1: So I come from the Chicagoland area. I am not a trained historian in the sense that I have a degree. Uh, I am a creative writer by training. But I've studied military history since I was about six, when my grandfather started telling me stories about his experiences in Korea. And I have sought, as I've gotten older and I've learned more and studied more, to bring a storytelling narrative arc, if you will, to the reconstructions of battles and campaigns and things like that to make them more accessible to people. Um, Because military history as a discipline, you know, there aren't that many of us. And and especially with the younger generation, I aim to bring them more in, you know, because without uh, the next generation, military history will fade as a discipline. And that is not something I think, would be good for uh, future generations, if you will. And beyond that, uh, I am a substitute teacher. Uh, I teach swim lessons as well, so I work with kids a lot, try to bring in history as much as is possible with them. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: So my first military history professor, his name is Jim McIntyre. He is a big Revolutionary War historian. This is his uh, focus, his emphasis, you might say. And taking his class and being his student and then, you know, over the course of several years becoming something of a colleague, his enthusiasm. About our founding conflict just spilled over into me, if you will. Um, Beyond that, uh, the American War of Independence, you know, I've read about it, right? The emphasis seems to be on the big battles like Brandywine in Long Island and Yorktown. But I find the lesser engagements like Green Springs to be far more interesting, far more telling in terms of the capabilities of the people on the ground, you can learn a lot more about uh, various individuals and their qualities as commanders and soldiers, if you will, when you look at these smaller actions. And over the summer, I came to Virginia Mm. for the first time, and I was battlefield hopping, right? So I hit Manassas and Vicksburg, I'm not Vicksburg, Fredericksburg, and what mind you, and I came down to Richmond. And, you know, the peninsula has a huge history, Yorktown, Jamestown, Williamsburg. And, you know, Greenspring is right smack in the middle of it. And, you know, it's not emphasized, right? I've never heard about it until recent years. Um, When we look at the 81 campaign, at least in the histories with Cornwallis, we go from Guilford Courthouse to Yorktown. But there is a sprawling, you know, six-month gap in between, so I wanted to figure out what was going on in between that, and, you know, walking the ground at Green Springs was illuminating, um, because it's a beautifully preserved uh, battlefield. It's part of the larger, I believe it's Yorktown National Battlefield, if I'm not mistaken, but, you know, it's not well-traversed, Right, so it's almost untouched, if you will. Uh, Same as it was in 1781, with, of course, some you know modern infrastructure roundabout, but it gives you a great sense of the action and why things occurred the way that they did. And to add that further, um, it is one of the finest performances of continental troops anywhere in the war, as we will see as we go into the battle later on. So that was very intriguing to me.
0: For those who aren't familiar, Connor, catch us up with the war in 1781.
1: Okay, so from the British perspective, we'll start with. So Cornwallis is chasing Green around uh, the Carolinas, right? He wants to bring him to battle because Green's army is the main continental army in the South. And he finally catches Green, and they meet up at Guilford Courthouse. But it is a battle that doesn't really go Cornwallis's way, right? He suffers heavy casualties. He sees, you know, a battalion of the guards turned back by the Marylanders, uh, uh, you know, towards the end of the battle. And he comes away victorious, but, you know, strategically his army is, you know, battered and bruised, and he can't really work with it. He has no loyalist support in the Carolinas, really. So, you know, he has no forage. He has no way to subsist in this area. So he ends up going north into North Carolina uh, to Wilmington. And there, in April, he writes a very candid letter to one of his friends, General Phillips, who's in Virginia. And he asks him, my friend, what are we to do? Um, You know, he writes, I'm sitting here getting rid of my wounded. He is miffed. And so he turns to Virginia, which at this time was the richest of the colonies and had been relatively untouched throughout the war. And he sees in it an opportunity because Virginia is the conduit down which Washington is funneling troops to his southern armies. So Cornwallis is of the belief that if I can get into Virginia and disrupt things there and maybe subjugate it, then I can choke off the Carolinas from support from Washington and thus reduce them that way. Um, he's also looking for reinforcements because at Guilford, he has suffered heavy casualties. And since January 1781, the British had sent something in the vicinity of uh, two to 4,000 men, first under Benedict Arnold and then under General Phillips um, on a series of raids up the James River, So Cornwallis believes that if he can come together with Philip somewhere around Petersburg, he can raise a large army and thus have a major impact on the strategic situation in that area. On the American side, you have a small continental army, about a thousand men who comes under the command of the Marquis de Lafayette and a score of Virginia militia. So when Cornwallis comes north, uh, Lafayette doesn't want to give him battle, essentially, right? Because to do so, that would be playing into Cornwallis's hands. You know, Cornwallis is arguably the greatest battlefield commander of his mm-hmm. rank on the British side during the war. And Lafayette knows that to fight him with what he has on hand Probably not the best idea. So he evades. And throughout May, he turns northward, right? He has to protect the magazines in the area, you know, the stockpiles and supplies for General Green. And he does a pretty good job of that. But he is waiting for a reinforcement under Brigadier General Anthony Wayne. Wayne is supposed to come down with a brigade of about 800 Pennsylvania Continentals. The thing with Wayne, however, is that he's had a very rough year already. January, you have the infamous Pennsylvania line, which uh, sees the disintegration of this veteran formation Wayne had led into battle since Brandywine, and even earlier than that. And so, having sent about a thousand of his men home, being discharged because of that mutiny, he's got to rebuild his forces. And it'll take him roundabout till the end of May. Finally, early June, he begins his march down into Virginia, and he is able to link up with Lafayette around the middle of the month. It is during this union, when Cornwallis hears about it, that he decides he doesn't want to risk a battle in north-central Virginia around that area. So he returns south towards Richmond, and he ultimately abandons the capital And begins to make his way to Williamsburg. The reason why he is doing this is because his commanding officer, Sir Henry Clinton, is up in New York, and Clinton is very nervous over New York. He believes that the Franco-American army is poised to attack him there, and he doesn't believe that the force he has on hand could repel it. So he wants Cornwallis to head down the peninsula to the fortified base at Portsmouth and basically embark all these troops back to New York. Cornwallis, who is from his correspondence is feeling a little guilty for having completely turned the operations of his commander on their head by going north instead of continuing into the Carolinas, decides to make his way towards Portsmouth uh, obeying these orders. And it's at this time that Lafayette begins to follow him, to shadow him, if you will. Lafayette really wants to hit Cornwallis's rear guard without necessarily bringing the wrath of the Earl down upon his head. So if he can figure out a way of catching the British rear and savaging that in a battle, he will be well content. Cornwallis, however knows full well what Lafayette wants to do. And he begins to prepare a trap somewhere along the James River uh, in early July. And that is how we come to the affair because no one ever called it a battle at Green Springs.
0: Connor, what was Green Springs?
1: So Green Springs in 1781, it was a plantation. It was a shadow of its former glory, you might say. It began... Early, about 140 years earlier, uh, as a 900 to 1,000 acre tract of land given to a gentleman named Sir William Berkeley. And Berkeley was the royal governor of Virginia for a good part of the middle 17th century. Berkeley uh, begins to build the foundations of the plantation. Um, He is going to plant crops. He's going to diversify them. You know, tobacco is obviously the major cash crop in Virginia. But he wants to see what cotton will do, what other crops such as this may yield. In the middle of the century, of course, uh, England is racked by civil war. And because Berkeley is a royalist, he effectively makes Virginia something of a royalist refuge in defiance of Cromwell. So when Cromwell sends a fleet out to Virginia, Berkeley ultimately yields his position, but not before having gathered about a thousand men to possibly contest um, Cromwell's seizure of Virginia. Ultimately, he steps down, but he returns um, after the restoration and Green Springs from there grows in size. Until around 1781, when General Wayne shows up with his forces, it is effectively a farmhouse with a series of outbuildings. Um, and it's one of a number in the area. So, you know, it's called the Battle of Green Spring, but there were a number of plantations along the James River at this time. So it was, you know, one of many.
0: Who were the troop commanders on both sides of this conflict and what were their overall strengths?
1: All righty. So, um, so Cornwallis's army, the what he brings out of North Carolina into Virginia is going to be around fourteen hundred officers and men, and these will include the Brigade of the Guards, what's left of the seventy-first Highlanders, the twenty-third and thirty-third Regiments of Foot, and he's going to absorb the forces which are already operating in Virginia. So those under general Phillips and what had been Arnold's command and with them, he rises in strength somewhere to around 5,000 men. Lafayette says, you know, the enemy strength is in about five, 6,000 men uh, around the end of May. So one of the reasons why Lafayette doesn't want to fight him at this time is that Cornwallis has a bigger army then Lafayette and an army probably of better quality because you have a lot of regiments here who, you know, their service goes all the way back to Breed's Hill or the New York campaign of 76. But you also have some new regiments like uh, the 76th Highlanders and the 80th Foot who will play very prominent roles at Green Springs. They are raised in 1779 and they only end up in America around 1780. And really, their only taste of combat has been in Virginia as part of Arnold and Phillips commands. So they're relatively green units. On the American side, you have um, a bunch of militia under Lafayette. Um, He breaks his army down into brigades. So he effectively has two brigades of Continentals. One is the 800 strong. Uh, Pennsylvania force under General Wayne which is made up both of old veterans of the Pennsylvania line and brand new men Uh, Ebenezer Denny for example who plays a prominent role in the article he was a 20 year old brand spanking new officer who will end up leading a company of veteran troops at Green Springs so there are a lot of new guys like Denny in those three Pennsylvania battalions. And, you know, they are supported by another thousand or so light infantrymen drawn from a number of lines. You have men from Massachusetts and New Hampshire and others. And then you have a lot of militia, You have several brigades worth of them. Um, two of whom under General Lawson and General Stevens were veterans of Guilford Courthouse. So these are guys who had fought Cornwallis, not three months earlier. Um, there were some among them who had, you know, run away at Camden and there were many among them who were former continentals, both Stevens and Lawson, for example, were former continental officers. So Lafayette has a mixed bag, but he's going to rely heavily on his two continental elements to really, you know, seize the day, if you will. Um, Against, you know, this mixed bag of veteran and new British and Hessian troops under Cornwallis.
0: How did the battle begin? So
1: it starts, um, you could argue it starts on June 30th when Cornwallis is writing in his correspondence, I would love the bloody Lafayette's nose somewhere along the James. So Cornwallis has to cross the James. Yes, cross the James River to the south side and then advance on to Portsmouth. Um, crossing a river with the enemy in the area, that's never an easy thing to do, right? Because you're vulnerable when you're crossing a river. So he decides that he's going to cross at James, uh, at James Island, James City Island, right? Jamestown. And the reason why is that his position is anchored on the left on the river and on his right, as Colonel Bannister Tarleton says, uh, it's anchored by thick woods and ponds and streams. So, you know, it's a good, it's not easy to be outflanked from this position. So Cornwallis on the night of five July starts sending men and material over. He's going to send over the Yagers under captain Johann Ewald and uh, Simcoe with the Queen's rain, with the Queen's Rangers, and these are men who are fantastic, independent commanders. Right, Cornwallis says, make as much noise as you can, show yourself, make you seem like you're bigger than you are. At the same time. He is sending out agents, Tarleton writes, of giving money to a dragoon and a freed slave to go into the American camp and sow disinformation among Lafayette. Lafayette doesn't have very many cavalrymen. He's got maybe 100 or so. So his intelligence gathering apparatus is negligible. Nevertheless, he's confident. He believes Cornwallis only has his rear guard on this side of the river. Let's go get them. So, morning of 6 July, he begins to advance his two Continental brigades up front, but something happens, and the reports coming in are confusing, they're contradictory, so he decides to halt. He sends the bulk of his Continentals back down the road towards Williamsburg, and sends forward an advance guard, a mixed task force under Wayne of about 500 men, which will include uh, 300 Virginia militia, around most of the cavalry under Major McPherson, and the 1st Battalion of his Pennsylvania Continentals. And they'll arrive at Green Springs around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. But Wayne is cautious, right? Wayne We consider General Wayne to be aggressive and impetuous and, you know, headstrong. But at Green Springs, he's very prudent, I think. He arrives around farmhouse around 2 p.m. And he sees in front of him thick woods that the only way he can get to them is over a marsh, right, down a causeway cutting through this marsh. So what he decides to do is he doesn't know what lays beyond these trees. So he's going to send forward his Virginia militia supported by the cavalry. If there's any enemy troops um, in those trees, they will root them out, basically. And as the Virginians move forward, they begin to make contact with this small element of Scottish Highlanders in the trees, right? About 20 or so, one officer says. And they start a shooting match, right? Which will continue well into the afternoon. It starts around three o'clock or so. So Wayne takes a good hour to get himself organized. Meanwhile, Lafayette is riding up to the sound of the guns, and he decides, okay, I need to bring the Continentals forward, right? I don't want to leave Wayne alone. So they're still several miles back down the road, so it's going to take them time to move up. Meanwhile, he decides, you know, I need to know what is the nature of the enemy, where his position is, so he decides to ride forward on a reconnaissance He finds a spot along the James that gives him a good access of the British position on the Southern bank. And he discovers to his horror, Oh my goodness, there really aren't that many there. The British must be still in strength on the side of the river. So he goes racing back to Wayne only to arrive to find Wayne in the fight of his life. By the time the first of the continentals arrive on the field, Wayne has pushed the enemy out of the trees and is suddenly induced forward by the sound of a cannon, right? One of his officers, an officer of the Continental Light Infantry, is like, hey, General, let me go get that cannon. Wayne acquiesces. This officer in command of about 100 or so Continentals moves forward through the trees, meets up with a Virginia officer who puts him on line at the edge of the woods, facing an open field looking towards the British camp. This officer begins to exchange shots with the British beyond the trees and realizes the British army is coming online and they are moving forward. And this officer effectively makes a one-man stand for around 15 minutes. He tries to turn the British right, which is emerging to his front, because he believes, hey, this is only a rear guard, right? So the fog of war is playing a huge role in the development of this action. The light infantry and the Virginia militia in the woods, they begin to retreat just as the remaining Pennsylvania battalions begin to move forward into lines of battle. And they're struggling forward across this marsh, through these trees, into the open field beyond. And as they come online, they're in a compacted formation right? They are following uh, von Steuben's dictums that they learned at Valley Forge, right? They're shoulder to shoulder. They're on a, you know, a limited frontage comparable to the British who are coming forward on a two brigade front with their uh, forward elements a yard apart or so, right? The writers, especially the Pennsylvanians are very observant of this, right? The British light infantry on the right are shoulder width apart and the two Scottish battalions, the 76th and the 80th, similarly, they're coming up on the British left, and they are in a looser tactical formation comparable to the Pennsylvanians. So as Wayne moves forward, he realizes, I'm already being enveloped, right? My flanks are about to collapse. I'm going to get crushed. And so Wayne does what Wayne does best. He orders in advance. He writes in his official report to Washington, I ordered a charge. And he says, amongst a host of difficulties, you know, this was the best option I had at the time. So he sent them forward in the belief that by doing this, I will check the British, I will stun them momentarily, and I will enable myself to have that space. He's buying space for time, basically have that space to withdraw my forces in good order. Because remember, to his rear, he has thick woods and a marsh. You do not want to be retreating across that with the enemy coming at you full tilt with a bayonet. So the Pennsylvanians come online. They have a few cannon with them in support. And either flank is anchored by what's left of the Virginia militia and some of that Continental Light infantry that had come forward earlier. So they come online. And they begin to exchange volleys with the British. All right. How long this lasts depends on the source. Uh, Ensign Denny fighting his first major battle says that we were engaged for no longer than three to four minutes. Uh, Colonel Mercer of the Virginia militia, another former Continental officer, he reports that from the time the Pennsylvanians came online to the time they retreat was no more than half an hour. Right. And it's getting late in the day. So it's around six thirty, seven o'clock at night when this is happening. So the Pennsylvanians, they're exchanging volleys with the British. Cornwallis on the opposite side. He wants a charge. Right. He senses the moment is right. Let's go forward. Let's drive these Pennsylvanians back. Let's see if we can destroy the best Lafayette has at hand at the moment. And so according to one, again, an officer of the 76, the Earl rides forward and he taps his cane on the shoulder of a Highlander because, you know, he's bellowing frantically, but in the volume of fire being unleashed, no one can hear him. So this Highlander looks around and he sees the Earl on horseback, you know, gesturing furiously at the Americans, hey, go at them. Now, these are Highlanders, you know. These are guys whose fathers had been at Culloden, right? When you're raised with memories like that, you're going to go forward, basically. So the Highlanders go forward. It kicks off a chain reaction. The 80th joins in because the 80th is made up largely of Lowland Scots. And there is absolutely no way Lowland Scots are going to be outdone by Highlanders. So they go rolling forward. And at the same time, the right wing of the British, they've already begun to envelop um, the American left. So the Americans, they've done their bit. They're like, you know, we've stood up. We're out in the open. We've exchanged volleys at, you know, an intimate 80 yards, right? We've done our duty. Let's get out of here. So the Continentals begin to withdraw. And again, depending on who you read, they either did it in an orderly retreat or they just turned around and ran helter skelter back across the marsh. One of the things that saves them is the dark, right? It is getting dark by this point. Lafayette has also been very diligent. He has brought up the remainder of his Continental Light Infantry and he has formed them uh, to act as a rear guard, a covering force around the Green Springs farmhouse. So By the time the Pennsylvanians extract themselves, it's dark. The British halt at the furthest point of the Pennsylvanians advance, and that concludes the action for the day. The Americans are going to begin to withdraw back towards their previous night's encampment at Norrell's Mills, and Cornwallis will be content uh, that he had delivered a bloody nose unto Lafayette this day. But there's a lot of controversy surrounding the engagement. The next day, Tarleton is frantic. You know, he's going up to Cornwallis, begging him, unleash me, you know, let me go after them. They're disorganized. I'll go forward and I will, you know, annihilate them. And in his post-war writings, you know, Tarleton is, uh, you know, he is adamant that had Cornwallis let him pursue the disorganized Americans. It would not have, it would have prevented, in his words, the combination which produced the fall of Yorktown and Gloucester. That is a big statement right there. I don't necessarily agree with that, simply because Cornwallis was obeying Clinton. He was, you know, absolute, we are going to Portsmouth. That's the way of it. But, you know, he was happy that he had, you know, rounded on this enemy who had been pestering him for several weeks and had, you know, bludgeoned Lafayette's nose because Lafayette will maintain a respectful distance um from then on. And so that concluded the action at Green Springs on the sixth of July,
0: seventeen eighty one. What would you say is the outcome of this battle? Um
1: so in terms of a result, I think On the American side, it vindicated Wayne because General Wayne, he's very, you know, Wayne is a sensitive guy. When we really look at him, especially in the wake of defeat, you know, he orders that, you know, he wants to court martial after Paoli. Um, He is very... placatory, if you will, to Washington in the wake of the repulse of Bulls Ferry, right, where he couldn't control his troops and they suffered a humiliating repulse. Um, And then, of course, the mutiny of January, you know, Wayne is, this is his line, you know, Wayne and the Pennsylvania line are one. And so when this happens, you know, Wayne is, he is extra sensitive about the quality of his troops that he's bringing into Virginia. Right Green Springs is the first big battle of the Pennsylvania line since the mutiny of January, and so Wayne is you know well contented by how well they do, right They go forward and they're there're never more than eight hundred Americans engaged at Green Springs, and they're going forward against about four thousand plus Brits, and they go forward even as they're They don't shatter. They go forward, they do their business, and then they extract themselves to fight another day. So in that regard, you know, Green Springs is, it's a defeat for the Americans, yes, but it's one of their finest tactical performances of the war. On the part of the, they, you know, did what they, you know, what Cornwallis had planned to do, it worked almost to a T. Right. He baited Lafayette. He baited Wayne. He waited until the Continentals showed up because he doesn't reveal his full strength until the Pennsylvanians come forward. Right. Because, you know, Cornwallis doesn't really care how many militiamen he slaughters. He wants the Pennsylvanians. He wants to break Lafayette's back if possible. And so having done this, you know, he continues on his way to Portsmouth. Right. Um, And that is the result of Green Springs for both sides. You know, um, it is a footnote in the looming shadow of Yorktown. Right. It, It doesn't necessarily bring about Yorktown, but it, you know, had it gone the other way, you could argue, you know, Yorktown may have happened in a different way,
0: if you will. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? That's an excellent question.
1: I think Green Springs, because it was a small action, um, it's forgotten, right? It's a sideshow. It is a footnote, right? And we tend to be, you know, fascinated by the big encounters, right? We, you know, that's why there's so many books on Gettysburg, if you will, you know, but it's in these smaller more intimate actions that we get a better sense, I think, of individual officers, um, their quality, how they react as soldiers, right? Because when you look at smaller engagements, you don't have to cast your gaze over so, you know, as large a canvas, basically. <laughs> Excuse me. You can focus in, you can see where. You know, mistakes are made. You can see how people react, right? Um, what they do well, what they do poorly. Also, Green Springs, I think it does, it goes a lot to, you know, showing the prudence of Wayne. Because Wayne doesn't just go bullheadedly forward, right? He sends out skirmishers initially, he brings his men online and he extracts them when it's necessary to do so. And he has an absolutely agonizing decision at Green Springs, send his men forward into the jaws of death to borrow Tennyson, right? To borrow from Tennyson. So when we look at the smaller battles, right? I think we get a better sense of the ebb and flow of the American War of Independence because it is these smaller actions where the majority of the combat is witnessed. Right, these you know big skirmishes and lesser skirmishes. They are these are the things that fill in the gaps between your brandy wines and your German towns and you know your Guilford courthouses and your York towns. And I think we do ourselves a great disservice by not looking at these lesser encounters because there is much to be seen and garnered from these small battles, if you will.
0: Connor Robison, thanks again. Thank you so much. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.